0: So glad to be back with you, Sherry and I are. If you don't know me, my name is Jim Whittle. I work for an organization called Equipping Leaders International, and uh, we train pastors and leaders around the globe. I'm the director in India, and uh, you're one of our supporting churches. Sherry and I love coming here to worship. If we could just convince you to sell this property and move a little closer to Douglasville, then we would uh, uh, attend more often. That may be... You may be thinking that's reason enough not to sell and uh, stay in Carrollton. Um, I've been home three weeks, have a short turnaround, leave on the 10th. We covet your prayers. I'm going to do two weeks of Bible college and then uh, a a leadership conference and then a Romans conference. So just continue to pray for us. We feel those prayers. Uh, The gospel is exploding in South Asia. Estimates are between 17 and 30,000 people a day come to faith in Christ Jesus, and uh, we need leaders. And so that's uh, where ELI comes in. So please pray for us as we go. I I love this passage that we're looking at this morning as as a visiting preacher and a traveling evangelist. Nobody ever invites me to preach at Easter time. And so I, I never get to preach these stories unless I just decide to. And so this morning we're in John 18, which focuses, as Ben just read, on the arrest of Jesus in the olive grove that's commonly called a Gethsemane. This story is in all four of the Gospels. And I love the way John has written the story right here. It focuses on our attention on three people, Judas, Jesus, and Peter. And it's written to show us a contrast between Judas and Peter. And the question is, who do you want to be like? Do you want to be like Judas the betrayer or Peter the defender? I think we might see there's a surprise answer in that question. So I have three things I want to show you this morning. And the first is the betrayer. You know, the very first time Judas is mentioned in the scriptures is in Matthew chapter 10 and he is called the betrayer. That was so central in the minds of the apostles that as they told the story and then wrote it down, that that was always mentioned with them. And it was core to Judas's life and his death. But you have to understand that Jesus was no victim here. He wasn't victimized by Judas And and this short story shows that. He stepped forward to meet his betrayer and the mob, and he set this arrest in motion when when he confronted Judas at dinner and told him to go take care of what he was going to take care of and to move quickly. That's why Jesus in John chapter 10 says that no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I do it of my own accord. I have that authority from the Father. And so when you put the gospel accounts all together, what you see is that Jesus and his disciples were meeting daily at the Mount of Olives. Uh, They were there teaching and learning, and they were also sleeping there at night. It was kind of where they were camping out during the, the week leading up to Passover. And on this particular night, the last night, while Jesus was wrestling with the Father over the cross, the disciples have fallen asleep. It's Passover Eve, and they're supposed to keep watch. But being spiritual like us, they didn't keep watch. They slept instead. It's what they do in the Mount of Olives. So they just went ahead and fell asleep. And in the middle of their nap, Judas brings a detachment of Roman soldiers, some some temple police, a a few officials uh, from the priests, and some Pharisees. Every important group who is in the opposition to Jesus is represented there. The Herodians as they're called, who are the Romans. They're Jewish, but they're also Roman. The Sadducees are the wealthy priestly class. And of course, the Pharisees are the lawyers, the religious lawyers and scribes. And they have been hoping for this moment for a long time In fact, in the book of Mark, in chapter 3, you can find that way back in the first year of Jesus' ministry, they they were offended by him healing a man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, who never get along, went off together and they began to plot how they might kill Jesus two two years before it ever happened. So, So then you have to ask yourself, well, why the large detachment of soldiers and why the swords and the clubs and why the middle of the night? Well, there's only one answer, and that's fear. They're afraid. that They're afraid of Jesus. And they feared that his messianic aspirations would somehow catch on and cost them all greatly. They don't want a Messiah. They want religious stability and political power, and a Messiah would get in the way. In fact, Jesus the weekend before has raised Lazarus from the dead and the response of the leaders to that great miracle is they said, here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they're afraid. But mostly what they fear is they fear Jesus himself because they know he's from God and they know he has power. They've had multiple opportunities to arrest him and to kill him, and they have failed every time. Even their own guards that they sent in John chapter 7 were afraid to arrest him. So in Matthew chapter 22, in the week of Passover, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, and And the clear inference in that parable is that these leaders know who Jesus is. They know that he's God's son, and that's why they hate him, and that's why they're afraid. And so now here in the garden, he walks up to them, and he asks, who do you want? You see, he's not a victim. And the next moment shows it. look again at verses 4 to 6 says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, when editors translate passages you have to know that your English version is really good. The ESV is outstanding, but occasionally they have to pick some things. And right here, they, I think they made a mistake because it doesn't say I am he in the Greek text. It just says I am. It says ego eimi, which is Greek for I am. It's the same way that the Old Testament is translated into Greek for the name Jehovah, Yahweh. You remember the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses comes to this bush that doesn't burn up and he talks to God and he asks God for his name and God says Yahweh, which is Hebrew, or you could transliterate that as Jehovah. And it means I am or I cause. And in Greek, it's translated ego, a me. It doesn't mean I am he, it says I am. You know, when humans, when people like you men and women like you and me describe ourselves, we were we use the to be verb to describe ourselves. I am tall. We might say, "Well, I'm not really." I'm thick would be a better description of me. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not tall. I'm stocky. Um, somebody might say, I, "I'm an architect," or I don't know why they'd say it, but they might say, "I'm a bulldogs fan," or Or they'd say, I I am from Douglasville. You see, we always modify that with some kind of description. But when God uses that to be verb to describe himself, he simply says, I am. And that's because he is the self existent one. Every one of us is dependent upon him to live and to breathe, but he has within himself the power of self existence. The Lord of heaven and earth, who gives all others their existence. He has no beginning, no ending. He is pure causation. So when he says his name, he says, I am. And when Jesus is confronted by Judas right there in the garden, what does he say? They say they're seeking Jesus, and he says, Ego me, I am. And his sovereign power is revealed. In fact, his power is revealed so greatly that they just fall on the ground. Now, I don't know anyone who claims to be on Judas' side in this whole thing. It was kind of a rhetorical question when I asked you if you want to be Judas the betrayer. Who, who wants to be labeled as a betrayer? But Judas, you see, he represents all those people that don't think that Jesus is God in the flesh, who don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Moreover, Judas represents all those people who think that Christianity is dangerous, at least the conservative side that that, uh, claims that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Modern Americans, modern secular people believe that all religions are good insofar as that they give meaning to life and give a perspective for living and offer some kind of hope. And religion helps people emotionally. Every study shows that, that religious people are more stable emotionally and spiritually. We somehow find coherence in life. But you see, modern people also believe that all religions are cultural and therefore equally valid, and therefore you should just simply out of the myriad options that you have, pick the one that helps you most, And be tolerant of the others. That's the basic approach of Hinduism that we face in India. Pick the God that you like the most who will help you the most. And then as we drive around in cabs, we'll see our cab driver always has a little idol that's Velcroed on the dashboard. And if I could speak his language, I always want to say, if if your God needs Velcro to stay on the dashboard... He's probably not God. Probably not. But you see, this is a problem. This religious tolerance is a problem if you've actually read the Bible and see what Jesus claims for himself. Here's John 14. I wanted you to see this one as he puts it up. Jesus answered and said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Jesus says unequivocally that he's the only way to the Father, and that whoever had seen him had seen the Father. Now, if Jesus is right, There's no way to practice religious tolerance. You stack up Christianity against other religions and they fall short. They can't be right and Jesus be right at the same time. However, if Jesus is wrong, then he's wrong all the way down the line. He's not only missed it as the way to the Father, but he shouldn't be followed at all. So the idea that all religions are equally alike just doesn't hold water within the study of these various faiths altogether. Now, every religion on the planet has one thing in common. They all have founders who point the way to God. They say, go this way. Go, go, go with me. Be like me and, and you'll find God. Every religion is like that except Christianity. Because you see, Jesus is not primarily a teacher or a guru or a prophet. He's a savior. He doesn't point the way to find God. He is the way to find God. And that's because he is God himself. They say, we're looking for Jesus, and Jesus says, I am. And they fall over because of the power of him registering the divine name. Jesus says, you'll never find God on your own. We sang that this morning. You'll never find God on your own Instead, he says, I've come to find you. Now, that is incredible good news, and that's what sets the gospel apart. So, love Jesus, hate Jesus, there is no middle ground. So, the first question this text asks us is, who will you follow? The tolerant Judas, or will you follow the way Jesus? Second second thing I wanted to show you this morning is not the betrayer, but the defender. Look again at verses 10 and 11 of John 18. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. In other words, if you're reading that, you could go find the, the priest's servant and you could ask him if any of this really happened. So, so, uh, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You know, from the moment that Jesus first told his disciples about his coming death on the cross, Peter has been working against it. Messiahs don't die, Saviors live, Kings conquer. God's man for Israel cannot die on a gruesome cross. A cross is a curse by God that's exactly what the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy 21. It says, anyone that hangs on a tree is under God's curse. So no matter how many times Jesus plainly tells his disciples, and he's been plainly telling them, no matter how many times Jesus plainly tells his disciples that he will be betrayed into the hands of men and that he will die on a cross and that he will rise on the third day, they do not understand the plan. So finally, when Jesus turns the whole Mary band towards Jerusalem, away from Galilee and Samaria, in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, they boast gladly. They're certain that Jesus is going to his death. They don't understand the resurrection, but they boast that they will all gladly die with him. Now, there's only one problem with that. Jesus is not asking any of them to die for him. And he's not asking any of us to die for him. They don't get it, do you? Then we get to John chapter 13 when Jesus begins to wash their feet. And if you remember that story, Peter refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. No way is he gonna be served by God's son. No way and no how. And and Jesus says to him, now you don't, realize, Peter, what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus responded, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You know, the core truth of the gospel, the good news is that not only does God find us instead of the other way around, God serves us in redemption. He's not looking for servants. He doesn't have a sign out that says help wanted. He's looking for children. He says in Mark 10, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's not because we deserve it, we don't, but because we'll never find God on our own. And we can't serve him or give him what he needs. He's the I am. He doesn't need anything from us. In Psalm 50, he says, if I were hungry, well, I wouldn't tell you. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your offerings. I don't need what you bring. I don't need your food. He says, you will ask of me. And I will ransom you, and you will give me glory. So Peter, here, represents all the defenders of Christ. He represents those who feel the urge to save Christianity from the decaying culture. If Judas represents the secularists and the tolerant left, then Peter represents the religious right. Those who believe that Jesus is God's son, but also that the gospel needs a little help. The modern definition of spirituality is that God is the divine presence And the goal is to get in tune with his presence. And when he is near you, you will feel warm. We'll lift our hands when we sing because singing about Jesus makes us feel warm. And God's presence is supposed to make us feel warm and loving and whole. But look what happens when Jesus says, I am. These battle-hardened imperial troops, they fall down. No one, including believers, can stay on their feet in the presence of the glory of God. There's so many examples in your Bible. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet sees the full manifestation of God in his glorious throne. And what does he do? He falls face down. It's amazing, but at the Last Supper, the apostle John, he's leaning on the bosom of Jesus, resting on his shoulder and his chest, in great devotion. And, but when the same apostle 40 years later sees Jesus in all his heavenly glory in Revelation chapter 1, what does he do? He falls face down, falls as though dead, In Luke chapter 5, when Peter and the boys have been fishing all night without catching a thing, and Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and then the nets are just bursting. Do you remember how Peter responds? He runs to Jesus and falls on his knees before him, and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When you have a real experience with God, it is often traumatic. The idea of warmth and a fireplace serenity is an idol carried over from Father Christmas. Peter is defending an idol with his sword. It's his version of the gospel that doesn't have a dying Messiah. The religious right also defends an idol, that Christianity somehow will bring family togetherness and prosperity and comfort and morality in the culture and, of course, right education. We're, we're certain that we're good folks. We give lip service to the, to the songs that we sing about uh, having no, no, nothing in our hands to bring. We, we're deserving of God's grace. After all, he picked us. We're we're on the right side. We're the defenders of the faith. We have the right politics, the right morals, the right solutions, the right candidates. But what happens to the prophet Isaiah when he encounters the glorious Lord? Look at Isaiah 6. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm 54 years old. I've been praying regularly since I was 25 that the Father would crush my pride and my arrogance and give me more of Christ. Less of me, more of Christ. And I can tell you that he's been very faithful and he has answered that prayer in abundance, but it has never made me comfortable or pain-free. And the reason is not because God is harsh. It's because my sinful self runs so deep. It's like mining ore out of a deep mine. Big chunks of arrogant gem has had to be ripped away and And because of his mercy, I still don't see all the arrogance left that still needs to be ripped away. I'm sure you could ask my wife and she could tell you about it. whole regions of pride and unforgiveness and my gospel superiority, my lack of mercy. You want to know something scary? Peter's version of helping Christ is far more dangerous than Judas' betrayal. You want to know why? Because he stands between Jesus and his mission to the cross. Judas's folly, that, that's easy to see. But, but so many Christians want to stand up for Jesus like this, to be a hero for the faith. Someone even asked me when I went to India a couple years ago if I was ready to die for Jesus in a foreign land. And and one time when I was there in 2009, I had the opportunity to speak at a gathering of 50,000 people, and the police had asked that I not speak because they were afraid of the crowds, and they didn't want to get in trouble for a foreigner getting beaten. So I took police advice, and I skipped that dangerous meeting. And, and one of my friends back here in, in Douglasville told me he was disappointed in me that I wasn't willing to die for the faith. Beloved, Jesus asked us to die to ourselves. He doesn't ask us to die for him. The gospel, the good news, is that he dies for us so that we might live for him. That's the gospel. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. Look at this passage. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who did that. When Jesus died, I died. When Jesus rose, I rose by faith. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, there's only one hero in this story. There's only one hero in the kingdom. And it's not Peter. And it's not you. And it's not me. Nor is it my friend who was disappointed in me that I didn't risk my life in India. There's only one hero in the gospel. And that's the third thing that I wanted to show you this morning is our incredible Savior. Look at Verse 8. Of John 18, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those you gave me. I have not lost one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup, the cup that the Father has given me? You know, the cup of God is a common Old Testament symbol of judgment. Here's just one example from Psalm 75. Put that up. It says, but it is you have Psalm 75? It's all right. If you don't, I'll just read it. It says, It's God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup of, full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its very dregs. You see, it's a symbol of judgment. So, In the garden, Jesus prays fervently if there is another way for God's salvation to work, for God's redemption to come, that the cup of wrath might pass by. But there is no other way. It's not to be. So Jesus drinks deeply from the cup of that wrath and he dies on the cross for sinners like you and me. And then the most incredible thing happens. The cup of wrath becomes the cup of salvation, and we drink from it at the table of communion. And I love the little details that are in these stories. When When the police go to arrest insurrectionists, protesters, who do they arrest? Do they pick and choose, or do they just bring in the whole mob? Well, they just arrest the whole mob. Bring them all in. Let the lieutenant at the precinct house sort out who's who. You know, send all the suspected terrorists to Guantanamo. We'll let them sort out who the real terrorists are later. But in this story, Jesus steps forward in order to save his men. And he says, let them go. In, in Greek, it could also be translated, forgive them. It's the same word. In other words, Jesus steps forward and says literally, forgive them. Take me instead. Now, isn't that glorious? Jesus did this so that he wouldn't lose any of his disciples. And that is so awesome. And that's the same promise that he makes to you and to me. Here it is in John chapter 6. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up. At the last day, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The last day. There's that reference to judgment again. On judgment day, everyone must drink from the cup of God's justice. But Jesus says that for those who look to him and trust in him alone, then he will be their substitute, even evildoers and sinners and the prideful and even betrayers and the weak. You know, that's amazing. You see, the secularists, the Judases, they say there is no judgment. That's just a barbaric and old idea. But to believe there's no judgment believes, means there's no justice and makes life really meaningless. Not only that, it means that you got to get your stuff together right now. Well, that's despair. That's slavery. That's not freedom. On the other hand, the, the conservatives, the traditionally religious, while well, we say there is a judgment, you better be ready. Right? And then we gossip about our neighbors and decide, and deny that there is a judgment because we take that stand for ourselves. You see, we become the judge. And so the question then for the conservative is how good do you have to be to stand in the judgment? And Jesus says, you want to know how good you have to be? Whatever measure, whatever measure that you use for other people is the measure that God will use for you. That's how good you got to be. So just imagine, imagine someone walking around you for a week, following around behind you with a steno pad. Well, it'll be an iPad and the note function now. And uh, detailing your, your secret judgments of others. Everything you say about other people, Everything you think, they would know your thoughts. Every time you grumble and mumble aloud. And then use that standard against you. I wonder if they kept the log of all your days. I I don't know about you, but I I don't want to go there. I don't want to see that record. You see, the bad news of the gospel is that you can either be on Judas' side and send Jesus to his death, or you can side with Peter and prevent his death. That's the question I asked you at the beginning. Whose side do you want to take? Judas's or Peter's? If you side with Judas and send Jesus to his death, your guilt is increased and you will end up in the same despair as Judas and who killed himself in guilt. If you side with Peter, well, then you'll be a hero. But you'll prevent the death of Christ, and so you'll stand on your own at the judgment. And you'll drink the cup for yourself. And the measurement used against you will be the measurement that you use against everybody else. Now, which one of those do you want? Well, the good news is there's another option. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Jesus... The good news of the gospel is that the judge came to earth and he put himself under his own judgments, under our measuring stick. And he died on a cross for our sins, even the sin of trying to save ourselves like Judas or like Peter. And then he rose from the dead to give us eternal life and real righteousness and a life free from judgment. Now, that is amazing. And if you will turn from yourself and from your sin and trust only in Christ, then he drinks the cup for us. It's so good. So I invite you to trust him today. To renew your trust in Jesus and to walk away from the desire to be a hero. You know, the age old question is who killed Jesus? Who's responsible? Bill O'Reilly even has a book out. They they even made a little movie. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Gentile leaders? Was it the the Jewish leaders? You know, that's led to a lot of anti Semitism in the church over the years. Or, Or was it the sinners saved like us? That's what we say in church. We put Jesus on the cross. Did we kill Jesus? Well, the answer is none of the above. Jesus was never a victim. It was God the Father who killed him. That was their covenant with each other, death for life. Here's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It was the Lord's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. Where are those offspring? He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper as in his hand. He preserves our lives in Christ. We are his offspring by faith, and faith alone in Christ alone. The will of the Father prospers in the hands of Jesus. It's not even the gospel we celebrate on Sunday morning in our worship. It's always Jesus. We even sang that this morning. And the question of the gospel is always, is Jesus enough? The will of the Father prospers in the hand of Jesus. Think about what that means for people of faith for heaven. More importantly, I want you to think for just a minute what it means for now. Listen, if Christ has taken your judgments, then who cares really what other people think? Can't you live free? Yeah, you can. Whether they respect you or honor you or talk behind your back, And guess what? If Jesus has taken my judgments, then I don't have to be the judge. I'm free from giving that nasty stuff back. I don't have to be a secret judge of others, right? I'm free. We're free. If Christ has taken your judgment, then there's no need for revenge or bitterness or to hold on to unforgiveness. You see that? The cup of wrath is gone. I don't need to be not only the secret judge of others, but I don't need to be embittered against my brothers or my sisters who might have done me wrong. I can forgive. And I can forgive deeply, and I can forgive completely, because that's what Jesus does for them. So that we can live together in love Set free from all that old stuff because it's all been put into the cup that Jesus drank. If Christ has taken your judgment, then you don't have to be a hero anymore. Now that's incredibly freeing, isn't it? Men, you don't have to be a hero for your family, regardless of what the religious rite says. You don't have to be a hero. Just be humble and be faithful. ladies, you don't have to be super mom. You don't have to homeschool your children and you don't have to work 60 hours a week. You just have to be faithful, humble and faithful and trust in Jesus. There's only room for one hero in the kingdom and it's not you. It's the Lord Jesus. If you get your heart wrapped around that, it will set you so free. I don't go to India because I'm a hero. I'm scared most of the time. Makes me nervous to even think about going back in two and a half weeks. You pray for us. If Christ has taken your judgment, then he gives mercy for folly. Isn't that good? Peter's folly is completely done over by the cross. I love that. Jesus doesn't throw Peter to the soldiers for his folly. He rescues him for himself. I love that about our Savior. He preserves us. He gives mercy for folly. He says, I am. Forgive them. So I just want to finish with these verses from Paul that are better than anything I could say. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, how we honor you this morning that in preserving the apostolic word for us, that you've given us this little contrast between Judas and Peter. And in the middle of it all, we found the one true hero of the story, the Lord Jesus, our only Savior and only Lord. And we confess that he is ours, not because we're clever, Lord, not because we've worked it all out, but because you found us in mercy. And so we celebrate that this day, and we thank you for the judgments of your wrath that have been poured out on Christ and will never, therefore, have to be poured out upon us by faith. And we praise you that we're free from all that old stuff, from being Judas the betrayer or Peter the defender. We don't have to be heroes in our own home or even our culture, Lord, just faithful humble sons and daughters of God. Would you work that out deeply in us, increase our faith, show us Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.